Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. Now, this is part two on whether or not we should embrace shame. The On The Couch episodes are Lloyd's unfiltered approach to the principle of charity. And in part one, Emil really teases out the topic with the guests. If you missed that, I really encourage you to press pause, go back and have a listen as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. For everyone else, we have Patty Ashley and Tanvir Ahmed on the couch. Enjoy. Uh, Tanvir and Patty, thank you so much. There, there was a great conversation with Emil. What we always do in the principle of charity is try to ensure that uh, we try and incorporate the other perspective. And so we encourage both ourselves to, to get out of our thinking bubble, to try and be curious about the other side. And so, Tanvir, I'm going to start with you. What are, what are the three downsides to shame rather than the upside, bearing in mind you, you've written... In, on, on the defense of shame? There's certainly poor ways of shaming. And, uh, you know, Patty's alluded to them. And the poor ways were, yeah, where you uh, d- kind of destroy someone's dignity when it flows into kind of, I guess, the notion of humiliation, uh, where there's no path back to any sort of group identity and where people think, yes, I'm a, I'm a bad person, and they retreat. Where it leads mm-hmm. to just pure retreat, that's, a re- that's another version of um, kind of negative uh, versions of shame, and and they're they're all the bad ways we we can shame. Mm-hmm. Great, Patty, you you mentioned to Emil that shame is never okay. So let's again taking the principle of charity. What are the three benefits of shame? If you have to look at the other side of your argument, well, again, the difference between shame and shaming, and I think shame itself is a regulatory emotion. If I feel really bad because I've hurt someone, it helps me self-correct, course correct. That's definitely the primal benefit of shame. But I think we've taken it so far into a culture that wants to control other people by shaming them that we've gone almost in the shadow side of shame in a sense, you know, a Jungian term of this unconscious shaming in order to control others. But shame itself, yeah, is a regulatory emotion. So that would be one benefit. What, what would be another benefit? I, I don't think it's ever okay. You don't? I can't. I can't. I can't do it. Like I said, the only thing I can see is that one thing is it's a regulatory emotion that helps us course correct, especially if we have good guidance around us that then gives us the direction of how we're going to course correct, but not to shame somebody who's feeling shame. Mm. or who's done something inappropriate, I don't think there's ever a benefit to that. 
And a question to both of you, but I'll start with you, Patty, then. How do I hold people accountable without shaming them? Well, there's there's consequences for our behavior, you know, and what's the consequence of that behavior? And how I think it's really important to follow through. I'm not a permissive parent advocate at all. Let the kids be kids. No, there's boundaries and there's there's consequences for our behavior, but they don't have to be punitive shaming. They can be, you know, leave your bike outside, it gets stolen. I'm not going to buy you another bike. You're going to, I'm sorry that happened. And you'll have to figure out a way to save the money to buy the another bike, but I'm not going to shame you for it and then go buy you another bike. You see the difference? And parents Yeah, so that's, it's more, it, what, what you're really saying is there's a behavioral consequence and uh, rather than a, you are a bad person for leaving your bike outside. Exactly. Tanvia, getting back, getting to you, what's, what's your view from a social or political point of view about how we hold people accountable rather than shame them? I agree with Emile to a large extent, like our systems of justice, et cetera, I think, I think, you know, are extremely advanced and it's, and, uh, you know, it's a big part of the success of countries like ours or the, the Anglo-European sort of system. So I, I'm not necessarily saying we would need to uh, run away from that. I guess my broader thing is the existence of shame tells us a lot uh, about some of the challenges of modern life. And they allude to, one, the, the place of the primitive and how we arguably suppress that too much in the culture. You know, and many of the problems I see are linked to that. The other is the place of a moral language. So, for example, a lot of, a lot of patients I see, it's really about where we increasingly don't have a language for suffering or adversity and increasingly we get a, a more medicalised version of it. And that can be quite limiting. You know, a classic one is, say, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, we've seen sort of a tripling or quadrupling of diagnosis in, in many Western countries, Britain and, and Australia and and uh, I suspect in, in the US as well. And while, you know, a great deal of that is to do with awareness, and, you know, perfectly legitimate. I mean, many patients I see, it's in part because they barely have a language, just the old religious language. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, many of what is diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder overlaps with that. Um, so that's another reason shame is, is so important to discuss and identify and talk at a deeper level. Because it really illuminates all these deeper aspects of ourselves, why we have primitive aspects that we're losing language for. We, we have moral aspects and, a, and a, a richer, we need a richer language to describe our experience and our pathology than we sometimes have. And we have yearnings for groups. Uh, yes, we have these great systems around law and justice and citizenry, but we still have these deep yearnings for groups um, and that, that they come out in very unusual ways now in, in the way we live now, especially with the online world. And the better we understand that and understand modern notions of shame, the, the better we can help people and encourage human flourishing and mm. have better societies in a way. Okay. So let me, let's take a practical example. There is a man who beats up his wife regularly and he's beaten up his wife substantively over 15, 20 years to the point where she's psychologically helpless, physically at risk. The judge sentences this individual to a period of imprisonment and says, when you get out or for a period of time, you're going to have to wear a sign saying, I'm a wife beater. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because 
again, what are our groups now? So it may have been a tribal setting where there's a reintegration component. It's tougher in our society because we we are sort of anonymous people just wandering around and what groups are we actually directly connected to? Say you're in a tribe and say there was a set period where you had to do that for a couple of weeks and then there was some other ritual uh, to reintegrate you, then that may be a useful thing, right? But the way you've described that one, I'm just trying to think what their path back to reintegration is. Well, they wear, they, they wear the sign for a year. Yeah, it's possible, but does that stain them for the rest of their lives in the modern world? I'm not sure they, they can be reintegrated after something like that. You know, there'll be images of them forever. Um, it, it becomes a permanent mm. stain, mm. so it becomes a lot tougher. But mm. what I would say about their punishment more generally is there should be an individual punishment, a legal public punishment, but part of regulating the behaviour, there may be a group component. Like who? what are the groups this person is connected to? You know, mm. is there a footy team they play for and and other men there, um, uh, you know, potentially able to regulate this man's behaviour, um, you know, by how, how they might ostracise him or treat him or, or then give him a path back. Mm. So, so there's, a, there's a legalistic way, but there's also a form of social regulation that can be healthy. But the reality is many people in our society aren't necessarily connected to groups, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and this person may be along those lines. So where somebody isn't formally connected to groups, You'll find even though people aren't formally connected to groups, they will still be connected in their minds to imagined groups. Mm. So they still may behave in some way to an imagined group. So that would be interesting to assess. But, but the bigger point is, yeah, you can shame, but there needs to be a path to reintegration. But maybe that's really hard in today's world when you get a yeah. permanent mark. But that could be yeah. a Google link, that could be a picture, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes it that makes it much tougher. Mm-hmm. Petty, how about you? Should should the, should should this person have to wear the sign or not? I'm a wife beater. You can only imagine the cringing going on inside me right now with that question. Absolutely not. So I would say let's rehabilitate because the wife beating comes from this person's shame. So the work, this is the problem with our justice system is we don't rehabilitate the reasons behind these bad choices these people make, we shame them more. So we're never going to make progress that way. I totally don't see it at all. So ideally, in an ideal world, which again, I'm talking about constructing something that's never been done before, that criminal would have to really face his own shame. After getting out, then what about restorative justice? How can I give back to the community? What can I do for women and, um, you know, helping domestic violence uh, change? See, so I'm doing something productive. I'm writing that new story. Um, I've learned that, oh, a lot of my behavior came from that I didn't feel worthy of love and belonging. So I'm going to beat my wife in order to, because that's just something I've developed over time. Mm, mm, so mm. wearing a sign saying that to me is the absolute antithesis of what I think would be productive. Mm. E- even though, of course, it may benefit many other women. If all, if all men believe that if they abused women, they would have to wear the sign for a year, they may be more careful about abusing other women. And so from a utility point of view, uh, there may be substantive upside to women. I don't think so. You don't think so. So, Lloyd, can I come in there? Look, for all our debates about shame, the reality is one of the great successes of the Western world 
is that we place so much value in the dignity of the individual. But that really is a cornerstone. So regardless of whether you're a murderer or you're you're the prime minister, whoever you are, mm. and uh, that is a real cornerstone of our culture. Mm. So so mm. in no way do either of us, and certainly not me, suggesting that that should be diminished. Mm. Now the broader argument around shame is that we elevate the individual appropriately in our culture, and mm. that's a big part of our success. But there's all these aspects of ourselves that yearn for groups that have innate needs and for group identity. And that's an aspect of ourselves that is not easily dealt with in our culture. Let me ask both of you this question. And I experience shame. So there are times when I just feel like I'm a bad person. There are times when I definitely feel guilt I feel that I've done something wrong. And there are probably times using the Brené Brown definition of humiliation when I feel people have said that I'm bad, but I'm not. So it feels, uh, I feel humiliated. If I came to each one of you and I said, or to, to both of you, and I said, look, Tanvir Paddy, tell me how I move from shame to guilt. What would your approach be? Well, look, like any sort of analysis, if you like. I mean, first you're trying to understand their experience. Um, you know, who they are, what what does the notion of shame mean, how does that then play out right. in their thought patterns, who they think they are, and day-to-day behaviour. And, and that's when you can start sort of challenging it because almost certainly it will be linked to erroneous beliefs or what we call cognitive uh, distortions. Distortions. And even as part of that, you're also trying to develop a trusting relationship with this person. So part of therapy is first just, again, acknowledge the innate worth of anyone. You know, for example, you know, I have to see pedophiles sometimes in jails and write reports, you know, even in that setting. You know, I have to sort of acknowledge their innate worth. So there is a com- almost a religious Christian mm. component to that, even though I'm, I'm not uh, formally religious. Yeah. So I, I think that's part of any treatment, uh, whether it's, you know, psychology or any sort of, um, you know, health professional, if you like. So it has to begin there. And then from there, that place of uh, a kind of a love, is where you tease out the meanings of this. And almost all patients you'll find, they will start seeing a greater depth to to how they attribute some of these terms and how they Mm. attribute the meaning to themselves and their relationship Mm. with others. And that's really the the place of analysis. Um, uh, But I guess one of my roles is, you know, we see people as individuals uh, and that can have limitations. So sometimes you need group rituals too. Um, and that's partly where this shame discussion comes. So, yeah. So that's the, the group work that you were referring to with Emil earlier. Yeah, they can't. Yeah, okay. Many of the people I see, they yeah. can't really get healing without some sort of group ritual. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, that could be through their religious group yeah. or whatever social group, whatever it might be. And that's the limitation of, of sometimes that yeah. my treatment has. And and it's real for me. Esther, I've already got sort of two benefits from Chanvir's statement around myself. I've probably got got a whole batch of cognitive distortions and imagined groups that I'm worried about that results to my shame. Patty, how would you get me from shame to guilt? Well, most of my clients don't even know that they have shame. They come more in with the guilt or, again, it's the language. So I I don't even use the word shame with my clients until I've really established whether or not that's going to be a trigger for the core shame. But if they came to me and said that, I've already got an idea that they understand shame to some degree. And I would simply 
point out the difference like I did earlier. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to help you tease out what this core belief that I am bad's about so we can, you know, repair whatever you feel guilty about and not internalize it so much. Yeah, that's great. Let me come to putting both of you on the couch about your own shame. What are the areas where where you feel a sense of shame? Patty, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, I got a whole list. How much time do you have, Lloyd? <laughs> probably probably not time for a therapy session, but but go for it if you could give us the headline. Let me give you the bullet points. Um, I was raised Catholic, very shaming, um, you know, very punitive. You should be ashamed, shame, shame. My father died when I was 11 of a sudden heart attack and nobody wanted to talk to me about it. And so I had all kinds of feelings and I felt a lot of shame because I had feelings I didn't understand and nobody wanted to talk to me. There's something wrong with me. So I decided I wanted to be a Mm. therapist Mm. (laughs) and, um, you know, give people a place to talk about things they want to talk about. But I end up barely making it through college, getting pregnant, getting married because I'm Catholic, having lots of babies because I'm Catholic. And then started therapy when I was 30 and was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Get divorced, move across the country as a parent educator. Shame, 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 shame. Oh my gosh. You know, dealing with this deep core shame my whole entire life is why I'm so passionate about this work because it's not anything I did. It's this idea that I'm bad. And boy, every, all of these things that happen to me that society deems bad, reinforce the idea that I am. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's hard That's, to pull yeah. out of that shame spiral. Mm-hmm. I could go on, but I'll just stop with that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'd like to come back to some of that. That's, that's, that's uh, incredibly helpful. Tanvia, how about you? Where's your area of shame? If- yeah, look, both sort of public and private. So, you know, privately, obviously, you know, there's all these ways you can be a better person, be a better father, be a husband and how you might have mistreated people in the past. And, you know, all those things play out. But I guess I, I certainly have an interesting dimension because, you know, I'm, I'm in public area. So often a classic one, and, and me alluded to this with cancel culture, I definitely feel like arguably I've been falsely shamed sometimes where you write something, it's misrepresented, but that's the part that gets uh, magnified, you know, whether it's social media, Google links, et cetera. And that certainly happened to me in the past regarding things I've written in the press, et cetera. And I feel like it's been misrepresented and then I've essentially been shamed because of that. You know, I've also been accused of sort of journalistic misdemeanours and similar. You sort of get, you know, these things, I'm probably an example that's felt the digital shame mm. where, you know, there'll be some sort of Google link and you sort of feel like it's not entirely representative of what happened or what you said. Uh, but that leaves a, a kind of long-term mark and it's almost, mm. it keeps coming back. That's what that's what mm. I find. That's mm. what's challenging about this debate. We want to reintegrate people. Yeah. But the modern online world actually can make that quite difficult. And that's why I'm fascinated by some of these debates. Say, for example, the EU where they, they, they wanted to bring in the law, the right to be forgotten, you know, where you had, you might have had some sort of Google link from a decade ago, but you should have the right for that to be almost wiped mm, from your mm, plate. Mm, so I mm. find that a very interesting way of mm. thinking about this, that there's a, there's a modern version of digital shame mm. that can limit reintegration. Yeah. And, and 
That's really interesting. I mean, I, I assume, you know, because it's in the public domain and, and if you're not comfortable to talk about it, we, we won't. But this was sort of an allegation of your plagiarism. Is that right? Yeah, Some that's of that. one of them. But yeah. also in, past, in the past where I've written, um, you know, column, I remember when I had a domestic violence column where I was alluding to changes in, in male lives. And to some extent, I was even talking about my father there, mm. the challenges he had in in migrating and uh, rapid changes in women's roles and changes in the economy. So that was another one where I was heavily shamed mm. kind of for almost essentially being accused of making excuses for domestic violence. And mm. I thought that was a huge misrepresentation. Mm. Um, but, you know, those, and even if it isn't, they, they stick, you know, yep. for, for example, where with accusations of plagiarism, and how, they how, sort of stick and, yeah. um, you know, they're in the, and while I've recovered, they there's still a Google link. So sometimes it'll come up in, in the strangest of circumstances, even though it's from a you know a decade ago, a long time ago. Mm. And how, how have you dealt with that? Because there's so much material on people who, you know, have suffered public shaming on social media and just the mental health impact that it has on them and the at times the unforgiving nature of it, it just, it can, as you say, last for decades. How did you personally, uh, and how are you currently managing it? What do you say to yourself that helps you manage? I look, I think you just have to carry on. The reality is, you know, my foundations are strong, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and that side has been solid along. So there's there's a public component that I think, look, the way I think of it is this, if you're in the public, you need to think of that almost as a mining stock or like kind of a, a tech stock. You know, it's up and down. There's a lot it's more a risk. It's a growth stock. It's a growth you know, stock. It's yeah, like a, there's a lot more risk, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the way I integrate it, that there's a lot more risk in those sort of behaviours. Now, look, it can affect your family and others who aren't as used to the public domain. Mm-hmm. But I think I've been able to integrate it going, okay, look, this isn't not unlike what Patty was saying. You know, things that happen in public life, or you've made errors in a public life. So, so in that respect, Patty is correct. You can't incorporate this as I'm a bad person. Mm. And, and there are these unique aspects of being in the public lens that you almost just—it just comes with the domain. And I think anyone involved, you know, even in small ways in public commentary or any sort of public work, has to accept those risks that they may be misrepresented. That that gets magnified through that lens and you almost have to just just get on and keep doing good work and you know not let it get you down mm. but why why is there the psychology of unforgiveness what, what, i mean because i don't think that's just a western issue i mean it, it's in all the shaming cultures have it that you you are not forgiven what what goes on why we don't forgive there must be a, there must be massive psychological benefit to not forgiving. What are they? Well, sometimes it's straight out self-interest. You know, mm. he's someone, you know, who's, who's, I know he's not a competitor or they're not doing this, mm. et cetera. So there's a component mm. of that. Sometimes it's a straight out rage. And I do think it's more that we get into this habit of good or bad. So if, mm. we, if there's someone we don't actually know, almost most people we know individually, mm. we will see them in greater complexity, mm. right? Mm. But in public life, where we see cartoonish components of people, I think we're far more likely to go, okay, you're you're good or bad, uh, and, and that's when it's easier for us to completely ostracise or, or cancel someone or get rid of someone. 
where in our minds we we can very much say, oh, they're the other or they're evil. And I think there is a bit more of that going on these days. Mm. Do you think if we had just sort of got back to talking less, and I'm sure Patty Patty will have very different views on this, but talking less about trauma, talking less about worrying about trauma, and just got on with that sort of old-fashioned dimension of get on with it, that we would worry less about shame? Oh, look, I think that that would be simplistic. I think it's appropriate that we have a deeper language for our suffering. But I do think that culture, to some extent, the modern culture almost sees people as fundamentally vulnerable, whereas I think for most of human history, we've seen people as resilient. And this also overlaps with some of Emile's comments about being so sensitive to emotional harm, particularly mm. for groups that we might see, see as uh, vulnerable in some way. So that's the key thing I would say, that we need to be careful not to construct the human being as innately vulnerable when, in fact, we are innately resilient. We often talk in, you know, in our show about the subculture of the particular discipline, and, and in your case, psychiatry. When do you think psychiatry should be more shamed? I mean, it seems to me, let me, let me uh, preface that, that as with therapy, uh, psychology, uh, e- even general practice in medicine, there isn't a great feedback loop from patients. And I sometimes feel that the professions, in this case, uh, sometimes medicine, psychology, psychiatry, are not very charitable to patients in getting their feedback about how this therapy is progressing. I mean, people have been in therapy for seven years. They don't go, you know what, let's review how this therapy is going. And the discipline should be allowing the patient to give some feedback. And in not allowing the patient to give feedback, it's not very charitable. So I'm asking you in psychiatry, when is the profession uh, needing to get more charitable with patients to get more feedback from them? Oh, look, absolutely. I totally agree with you, Lord. There, I think psychiatry should be much more honest with itself. There's so much we don't know. You know, our diagnoses are quite grey. Uh, we've become too uh, dependent on, on drugs. And we should go back to basics and help people understand their experience. And there is a big movement around this. And just be very modest about, about our knowledge and, and how we can intervene and that ultimately it's our patients that help themselves and we're kind of facilitators in that. And look, I think most good psychiatrists are that way inclined, but sometimes the public, the way we project ourselves publicly is, is, not, is not accurate to how much we actually understand of the brain and of mental illness. So we've oversold, I think we've oversold uh, some of our abilities and, and our knowledge. And, and as a result, you will probably get a whole batch of criticism because you've oversold. <laughs> and appropriately so. Get ready for some more shaming. <laughs> <laughs> Patty, in a similar vein to my question to Tanvir, when we look at the discipline of psychotherapy, what are the feedback loops that therapists are getting that help them understand whether they are actually benefiting the client or not? Well, there aren't any, and I agree with you. There ought to be um, some some way for therapists to get that sort of feedback. I think a good therapist wants that. And again, my shame informed therapy is all about that. is about it's relational and it's about balancing power. So the therapist isn't knowing all knowing, and the client is just the mm. the client who needs help. It's 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 that relation where 
it's we're open for feedback and we we ask you know how 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 are you feeling today how am i we can even say how am i doing mm. you know and i think it's it's really when we when we um balance out that power and and get out of the position of thinking that we know more and we're better than that that organically happens mm, mm, mm. that's what good therapy is in my opinion i'd like to come back to your experience of shame and and you know your openness about it um and just staying again with the vein of treatment you know you've looked at yourself you're working in the domain of shame what stops you why why does this still continue with yourself despite all your work why is shame still there for you despite i assume you've been in psychotherapy you work on it why does it linger so much I'm just aware of it and I have tools and I, and I do what I need to do to, to refocus myself and regulate. Most people don't know how to do that because it's all unconscious. So the, they act out in certain ways that are really coming from this core shame and they just keep repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. For me, I'm shameless in terms of, I know I have shame. And that's one thing. That's the other thing my clients love about me is, wow, you say that you, wow. You know, and it's, again, it's that twinning. It's that taking me down off the pedestal and making me human. We're Mm. all in this together. We're trying to figure out an awful lot right now and regarding the human condition. And so, yeah, shame doesn't grip me like it used to because I'm very aware of it and I'm able to manage it. But I can't say that I don't have it at all anymore. It's 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 an amazing thing because as you were speaking about yourself and your background and your experience, you know, of your father dying, your uh, marriage, early pregnancy. Uh, Tanvir was talking about accusations of plagiarism, his experience on social media, and how tough it was. Just being honest and vulnerable allowed me to personally connect with you in a deeper way. Even though we're doing this over Zoom, I don't know who you are, and I just connected with you in a much deeper way. And going back to that earlier sense of Brené Brown's statement that sometimes what shame is, is feeling unloved or disconnected, it just highlighted to me how powerful vulnerability and the expression of vulnerability is in connecting with people. And, you know, even if we didn't want to do it and we took the view that connection actually is such a driver of happiness, it is a driver of longevity, it's amazing we don't share more of our vulnerability. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yes. You know, Brene Brown's work on vulnerability and her TED Talk that went viral is all about that. That's that's really what it's all about. You know, we think mo- historically vulnerability was seen as powerlessness when it's really our power. Mm. Um, and so thank you for that. You know, yeah, I I am vulnerable. And we also have to be cautious, you know, of who we share our shame stories with. You know, I, I there's certain people that aren't safe. And, mm. you know, in this format, as we're trying to get information out, I feel it's important to be vulnerable. Um, but there may be certain situations where we, we're not. Mm. And I think that there's a, 
thing I, you know, we have to balance out with that as well. In your practice, do you think that men are more vulnerable to feeling shame than women? Because they tend to compare themselves more, they're more competitive, or do you feel that the nature of, you know, discrimination, patriarchy uh, makes women more vulnerable to shame? I think it's just different. I mean, historically, and of course, with all the gender fluidity, things are changing quite a bit. But, you know, historically, it's been men feel shame around not being successful in the workplace and being able to provide for their family. Women feel shame around their body and their uh, parenting um, looks and things like that. But I, I, I think everybody has some element of not feeling lovable mm. in my experience. Mm. Um, and, and we don't want to talk about it. Like Brene mm. Brown says, you know, um, not talking about it makes it worse. Everybody has it. Nobody wants to talk about it and not talking about it makes it worse. Mm. You know, talking about what we don't talk about often in my work with leaders, I find, and I find this for myself as well, it's easier for me and I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier for me to know myself and my feelings rather than my impact on others, my social impact on others. And I'm wondering for yourself, maybe we'll start with you, do you ever think about how you've shamed others and the consequence of that rather than you feeling shamed? Of course, yes. Um, (laughs) I'm laughing because uh, my daughter, this is probably not exactly what you're asking, but the story that comes to mind is my daughter, who's now 42, I I told her, I never said, stop crying before I give you something to cry about. And she said, yes, you did. And I said, no, I didn't. And then I realized I was, she was nine years old when I started studying with Catherine Kersey, my early childhood mentor. And I probably did. I probably did the old school Stuff. I mean, again, I'm my work is really around the parenting aspect, so that's what I gravitate to mm. in your question. And there probably is more other elements. Of course, I've shamed partners that I've you know been in relationship with. I've you know, yes, I, I have, of course. Um, and then it's always the repair. But I'm technically a kind of a nice person, though, so mm. it doesn't. It's not my nature. I was really lucky. My parents were very kind. You know, they, they never really, I mean, this, they, my mom was very shaming and controlling and you better not do that and stop that. And, but there was an element of kindness, particularly with my father. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I kind of have that and I'm grateful for that. And so shaming is hard for me to do, but yes, I have done it. And I, having, having a psychotherapist on, on the show, I, I have to ask you a little bit about one or two upsides of personality disorders. So when I was thinking about it, I thought the only personality disorder I could think of that is avoidant of shame completely are narcissistic personality disorders. Is that right? I mean, do they just dismiss shame completely and immediately? And are they the one grouping of people who do not experience any shame? Well, I think it's one of the biggest defenses against shame. So all of the behaviors that develop are all just defenses against this unconscious feeling of I'm not lovable. So the narcissist is so defended that they can't even see. And then we'll go into, say, a sociopath, and they have, you know, that lack of conscious. I conscious. see. Mm-hmm. My sense is, you know, and we have narcissistic personality disorder and we also have narcissistic traits. So, you know, there's a spectrum of the severity of it, but... 
typically it's the, I can't, I'm going to argue with you and make sure that I'm right and you're wrong. And I gaslight you because I feel so badly about myself, but I don't even know it. So doing a full circle, if I don't feel shame, if I never experience shame, it would be very hard for you to hold me accountable. Let's just take for a moment, and I'm not saying he is, but let's take the view that from, from some individuals that Donald Trump is a, is a narcissist and is there any way of ever holding him accountable because he doesn't feel shame, assuming that assumption is correct? Can I ever hold somebody who never experiences shame accountable? Is it just a waste of time and we should just move on? I, you know, you're asking such a hard question. I always say I don't talk about politics and religion because I could say a lot about accountability. I mean, he should have been in jail a long time ago. What's the problem there? You know, there's no accountability for all of the things that he has done that, that are crimes. And we're, bare, we're barely touching the surface. And then now what's going to happen? So I think, yeah, there's accountability for that. But somehow he's not being held accountable. And why is that? You know, but he doesn't, as a, as a human being at this point in his life, I don't know if he would ever feel remorse or a sense of self that we're ideally wanting to create in a better human condition because he's so rigid in his behaviors and the things that he does, that he's doing. I see. So Donald Trump came to, 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 to Patty Ashley, to your practice in Boulder, said, Patty, I need some help. Uh, uh, you know, what, what, where do you start with him? I wouldn't. Why? why? I only work with people who want to do the work. I, and I, maybe that's where I would say to him is, you know, are you willing or is this something you're really interested in? Tell me, tell me what you see. You know, I'd have to, you know, if he did, which is so hypothetically impossible, but if he did, you know, I would, that would be what I would assess. First of all, is this, are you really willing? And if he isn't, I'm, you know, he wouldn't be the right fit for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much, Patty and Tanvir. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. You too, Patty. It was fascinating, so thank you. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. See you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.